Hello and welcome to Altamar. It's New Year's Eve. Happy New Year to all of you. And today's show is our now traditional end of year show. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. And yes, Peter, here we go again, trying to wrap up the year's lessons and key developments and more ambitiously to forecast harder and harder some 2022 re- trends. We'll be joined soon by Ryan Heath, political global expert. But first, we're going to venture some analysis and fortune telling in what we have called the good, the bad and the scary. So let's start on a positive note and talk about some of the promising developments in this murky year. And there's plenty of time later and plenty of subject matter to talk about threats and doomsdays. Okay, Mooney. So given my optimistic self and my sunny personality, you've assigned me a few thoughts about the good. So let's give that a whirl. You know, I think first and foremost, as the second year of COVID comes to an end, we can be grateful for science, for vaccines, for promising treatments, but also for the spirit of collaboration within the health industry. Many regions of the world and global institutions have made efforts to share information that enabled quick clinical studies, exchange of case studies, and get it transitioned quickly into treatment. And not just for COVID, which saw massive vaccine distributions in 2021. Of course, never enough, particularly in the developing world, but still so impressive. But another exciting scientific development in 2021 was WHO's approval of the first malaria vaccine. Remember that malaria kills 650,000 people every year. More than half of those people are children under five and remains one of the leading causes of death in low-income countries. So that's one. Another sliver of hope arises from the growing consensus on climate change from a private-public optic. I guess the problem has gotten so bad that the world started to pay attention. A lot is still left unfinished. COP22, I don't know if it was a success or not, but somehow it seemed to deliver some promising hope of a global solution. On the political side, there's an emphasis on accountability that is mounting and mounting and mounting against China, most recently in light of the upcoming elections in China and calling out the regime after tennis player Ping Shuai disappeared. Does this mark some dents on what used to be the Teflon of President Xi's reputation? Well, we'll see, but I think it's certainly starting to become a difficult, difficult time for China's reputation. And last, I got to say, Mooney, one good piece of news that should not be overlooked is President Donald Trump's exit from the White House and perhaps even more momentous from Twitter. This is a great stride towards national sanity. I don't know if it's a great stride toward national unity, but it is a great stride towards sanity. But the worldwide impact is deeper. The U.S., whatever you think of President Biden's record so far, is somehow back at the table, addressing the world's most urgent problems in a multilateral fashion. And even with the rise of China and Russia as more and more important main characters on the global stage, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, the U.S. voice is once again being heard and listened to, which is so important. So those are my four ideas of the good, Mooney, for 2021. So this is so unfair because I'm actually the one with a sunny disposition and optimistic nature, and I get the bad, but there's so much to include in this very short intro, and it's certainly been a tricky year for everyone. And here are my Oscars for the bad in 2021. So, Peter, on the health side, of course, COVID is still here. This is the worst news in the entire year. And strain after strain sends the world in a tailspin. 
affecting mainly underserved populations in developing countries. Two major strains in 2021 were not where we thought we would be after scientists, as you mentioned, developed so many vaccines and so many treatments so quickly. On the international side, there are very serious concerns around the world. China, which you mentioned, is still running much of the show, despite a slowing economy that will, of course, also impact the world, another negative. Human rights concerns are not abating in China and around the world. The once promising Iran nuclear deal is shrinking. There's some positive voices of maybe reactivating, but not clear. There's efforts to keep it alive in Europe. Merkel is gone. That in itself is a huge vacuum, which is hard to believe. France is in a rut. Macron is cornered by the extremes. Boris Johnson has faced so many scandals at the same time and crises that we really wouldn't know where to start picking them apart. And Latin America, as Peter recently wrote in um, op-ed in Break News, has once again fallen in love with the extremes. And the region struggles to recover from COVID in the middle of a really busy electoral cycle. And it has continued a concerning retreat from democracy. So not a lot to be hopeful of uh, over there either. The world economy is, to say the least, in disarray. We've spoken in previous episodes about supply chain dysfunctions, not getting better, spiking inflation that's trying to be addressed, headaches for consumers, and all triggers for inequality. So definitely a scary year, which brings us to the scary, courtesy of our colleague Tia in her section, Tia's Take. Hi, I'm Tea Ivanovich, and this is Tea's Take, where we take a look at news and social justice issues. So this is my very first end-of-year episode, and I'm honored you guys gave me the scary section, Peter and Moni. There was a lot that was scary this year, and also importantly, what I'm keeping a close eye on in 2022 is also scary, and it's social media. And I don't mean, you know, keeping a close eye while scrolling mindlessly on Instagram into the night, but I'm really talking about Instagram's effects on society in 2022. And 2021 was a year where we made some real breakthroughs on social media governance. And Facebook in particular was a target, but we're still really far away from any meaningful change. And as Bill Gates wrote in his year in review blog, he looks at social media as a major driver of polarization in the world. As most of us would agree, I think, social media has played a huge role in spreading misinformation that makes people really suspicious of their own government. And social media feeds have become so personalized that you don't see factual information if it doesn't align with your profile. So I'm not optimistic. The Gen Zers are more enamored with social media than any generation before them, including my fellow millennials. And as Gen Zers come of age, will there be more or less appetite to regulate social media? So I'd love to hear what you think. What's in store for social media and e-governance in 2022? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let us know. Thank you, Taya. It's hard for me to imagine how much is going to change on the social media front in 2022. We've now done a roundup, and so let's break it down and hopefully make sense of all what happened in 2021 and look forward to 2022. And that's why we're welcoming Ryan Heath, author of Global Insider, formerly known as Global Translations, Politico's extraordinary global newsletter and podcast. He previously authored Politico's UN Playbook, the Brussels Playbook, and the Davos Playbook. Ryan moderated the first presidential debate of the 2019 EU election as part of a five-year stint in the Politico European leadership team. 
He's the author of two books on politics, which he wrote while working at the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia and worked for the European Commission in Brussels as a presidential speechwriter. A true global expert, Ryan, we're so happy to have you on Altamar's year-end episode, which this time we've called The Good, The Bad, and The Scary. Welcome. Well, I, I hope I'm the good. I don't want to be the scary, but I'm pleased to be here. All right. So I'm going to give you the one chance to be good. And so let's talk about sort of we're a geopolitical podcast. So what are some of the positive takeaways of 2021 and what are the promising trends of 2022? This will be your only chance to be positive, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the argument over net zero emissions has been won. That does not mean we are guaranteed to get net zero emissions or get them when we need them to keep the climate and the planet safe. But I think the intellectual argument is now over. And that was a big shift in the last 12 months. We're starting to see some real outcomes as a result of Me Too movements, litigation, court cases. As always, it steps forward and steps backwards. But you just look at the gymnastics case settlement in the US. You look at the way the Chinese Communist Party even is under pressure because of Peng Shui's allegations. You have the US engaged in some really future-oriented investment debates. Legislation is not through in all regards, but you know the US is looking forward now, and it wasn't uh, previously. And I think a lot of people are rethinking their relationship to work, and that is a positive thing. You know, there's a lot of people who were slaves to work or who live to work rather than work to live, and the pandemic has been a moment for people to rethink how they want to do that stuff. Interesting takeaways. Let's move a little bit to the global obsession with China. It's interesting what happened this year. China's military power has clearly become stronger, but its reputation took a real hit in 2021. And Beijing instituted a raft of new business restrictions targeting e-commerce, social media, education, fintech, ride-hailing, gaming, real estate. And President Xi attained the status of exalted leader on par with Mao Zedong, but the human rights abuses against the Uyghurs, all of these things have really heightened, quote unquote, the risk of China. What do you think? You know, a lot of that is in, I don't want to say the eye of the beholder, but I think the government in Beijing has been responsible for a lot of abuses over a lot of years. And it's probably more the case that we're just thinking about them more and processing more of them. Or when a billionaire is subject to the abuses, like Jack Ma and others have been, then maybe it's easier to grapple with than a faceless human rights advocate or a person living in rural China. I get that Americans have real reason to be worried about China. It's a direct threat to American supremacy. And there are elements that Americans don't have any control over. So of course, that's going to be a worrying phenomenon if you're used to being the top dog in the, the global pecking order. But from a global perspective, you know, I think it's a little more complicated where you have smaller countries that have never really assumed that they were going to dominate China or the world. So they come to the China relationship from a different perspective, let's say. China is just too big for them to ignore or to effectively negotiate with. So the only way China sort of becomes scarier than it has been for a while or less scary, as uh, if, if those smaller countries are able to team up with countries like the US. And, you know, I think that that's not a given. If you are sitting in Africa, where you aren't getting access to vaccines, you haven't had a great experience of colonialism, aid hasn't really worked out for several decades, Chinese investment is very tempting. So I think it's a big, difficult, complex situation. And one thing we know, it's not going away. 
So there's other concerns and actual physical threats to world peace. And I'm talking about Taiwan, Iran, Ukraine, where analysts are worrying about wars that include the planet's great power. What are the odds of these threats turning into reality and even more so reality all at the same time? And how much of these tensions are related to a weakened United States, which we mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, and how the absence of the seat in the table left the rest of the world vulnerable? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both, to be really honest. So on, on the risk, we've been lucky for a very long time. We haven't had major miscalculations on nuclear. We haven't had Western powers throwing themselves into to wars by accident. We haven't had accidental pandemics and things like that. I think we have to expect that our luck is not going to continue forever. Um, so I think there is a real risk on any of those theaters. I think some of the problem isn't so much that the US is declining in absolute terms. It's not that the US is suddenly weak or, or just because it, it wasn't really engaged with the world for those few years under Trump. I think it's more that the US is unquestionably declining in relative terms. So that's just changing, scrambling all of the power dynamics of the world. And yes, China and Russia are trying to assert themselves in what was a bit of a vacuum under Trump. What is this declining role of the US in the world? And so, yeah, there is aggression there and either side could miscalculate. I think the big question becomes what is the US willing to sacrifice to retain its current role? in the world, or is it willing to sacrifice? And in the past, it's been willing to devote huge amounts of money, a huge percentage of its GDP into military and other investments to maintain that role, been willing to sacrifice tens of thousands of lives in conflicts, often working class lives. And it doesn't seem to be a huge appetite for that from really any part of the political spectrum in the US. And so it's not weakness, it's just a reevaluation of all of those past strategies that, that really gives China and Russia the opening. So Ryan, I had the privilege of leading the scary part of the good, bad, and scary episode today. The scary for me is the complete dominance of social media and its driver's seat role in global polarization. I mean, just look at Donald Trump's possible rerun here or Eric Zemmour's rise in France, the victory of Brexit, the social protest in Chile, or the culture wars in Poland. And in 2021, we saw social media's outside attempts to control the voices of certain political leaders. We saw scandals and we saw government attempts at controlling the platforms, all with little success. What can we expect in 2022? Yeah, that is a tough one. I think you are right on the scale of the problems, first and foremost. You know, personally, I find it hard to remain neutral these days in reporting on them because I feel like there are just big problems. You know, I feel often that misinformation that exists on these platforms sort of is described as the problem itself sometimes. And I feel like it's the symptom of the problem and that there's a deeper problem, which is not just the dangerous misinformation or that the platforms enable it, but that the platforms have a real business model and corporate governance problems. And until we start to tackle them, and I do think regulators are at least looking at this seriously now in a lot of countries, until we look at the business model and try to restrain and regulate it, not a lot is going to change. There's no accountability today on the way algorithms operate or the way th these bigger companies are allowed to sort of prioritize profit over welfare. And I know that can kind of sound like a cliche to reduce it down to that, but the system of 
venture capital in Silicon Valley and of these biggest companies is never to tread gently or quietly or to see what risks might sort of be occurring and to manage them. It's to go out and literally to do things and break things and then just deal with the problems afterwards. And until something changes in that legal framework, I don't think that you're going to see these problems come under control. And I think the reality as people grapple with that is that every attempt at regulation is going to be too blunt or too slow or have some other flaw or unintended effect. But that shouldn't stop those discussions from happening. You know, you look at something like climate change, it took 30 years to really get sort of the train moving towards net zero emissions, but it's happening. And hopefully there won't be 30 years worth of misinformation damage that we have to put up with. But you, you see the same trend happening in tech. And there, I think there will be an acceleration towards that regulation in 2022. Ryan, it's not been a very good year for democracy, and it doesn't bode well for 2022. I am Colombian, and I see Latin America backsliding before our very eyes, right in the middle of a very busy electoral cycle. Here in the U.S., it seems to have some, you know, definitely some flaws. And, and other countries around the world, Russia and China in particular, are using this vacuum or this breakdown to very actively support both campaigns and regimes that are far from being democratic. And this Biden administration's attempt at recovering the, the spirit of democracy, the summit, held um, some time ago was both controversial and inconsequential, which is a horrible combination. What are your thoughts about the state of democracy in the world? Are there any glimmers of hope that we can hold on to for 2022? I would absolutely say that it's been a fairly dark picture for a while now, but I think there are glimmers of hope. You know, my starting point is always that democracy is about more than elections and electoral politics. And I think we're starting to see more discussion around that now. You know, in my mind, democracy is about any system that helps you give control over your life. And it's always going to be imperfect and you always have to work for it and you can't take it for granted. But from whether it's your building or your neighborhood or your city or your state or your country, or we, we look at whole global institutions, you know, democracy can exist in any of those things if we're willing to, to actively work for it. And so I need to give the Biden team credit. I think there were right to raise these issues. And it was a good thing that this summit happened. But back to that point, it's not something that just happens at a summit. It now has to become a year or more's worth of work. And whether that becomes formal structures like new alliances or something else, the summit will only be inconsequential if people don't go away and take further actions. You know, and I think the Biden administration, to sort of back you up a bit on what you were saying, it's on fairly thin ice here. You know, they've said all year long, that democracy has to, we have to prove that democracy can deliver. And very often they're not proving that democracy can deliver by not being able to, to get legislation through the US Congress, by never getting their ambassadors out into the world and so on. But that is a reminder that you, like, I know that leaders of major democracies do care about the system, but they have to start putting that into practice. And that means taking some short-term political hits. It means making some compromises that are just messy and, and not something that they would ever design or that it, their advisors would ever choose for them. And until they can come up with a few basic compromises like that, and whether that is getting vaccines to everybody, whether that is drafting some new trade deals or creating a proper global alternative to China's Belt and Road, until 
these democratic leaders are willing to do that, then you know, we're not going to see a turnaround for democracy. And in my mind, the answers are just fairly obvious. We don't need more answers. We just need more leaders who are willing to implement the answers. You talked a little bit about climate change in pretty positive terms, in terms of the the inroads that have been done, especially in emissions. But we saw at the end of the year that both India and Russia vetoed a UN resolution associating climate change with national security. And there had been some glimmers of hope on the part of Putin, who had tried to verbally support some climate change initiatives, which he hadn't done before. We saw India, I think China abstain in this resolution. So it does seem like it's a lot of talk, but when there's time to show action, the hope starts to dissipate. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that the UN Security Council has been dysfunctional for a long time. So I see that not just as a problem for the climate, but as a symptom of sort of a very senior governing body of the world that isn't isn't working. So in some sense, we have bigger problems than the climate. But in other senses, there are action on sectoral initiatives, including countries like India and Russia. And so you look at something like the COP26 summit, like one of the biggest things to come out of that was the methane pledges, this new coalition around methane. And that is extremely important because it's the most noxious, toxic of all of the greenhouse gases. And we all focus on carbon and just ignore other elements of the equation. And so it's nice to see some of those other elements being dealt with. I don't want to just revert back to the old George Bush language about innovation and technology being the thing that will get us out of this crisis. But there is something to be said for the fact that we just can't rely on politicians here. We need people to feel that they can make money out of it. I think that is starting to happen. And I think we're going to start to see some of those real transformative technologies really scale and really just become a part of our everyday lives. And, you know, and in the same way that we've seen a lot of local government and corporate action during the Trump years, I think we're going to just see more of these innovations drive the change. And we're not going to be able to rely on sort of national targets and national carbon prices and things like that. You know, I would hedge that comment by saying that I think it is a kind of throw everything at the wall situation. But my bet is we're not going to be sort of using the UN Security Council and sort of national legislation as our guiding frameworks for some of this progress. Do you see this type of private intervention in innovation and technology and other issues beyond climate change? Um, that's an interesting one. Um, yes, in the sense that that is where a lot of sort of uh, venture capital goes to. It goes into to technologies because they're the things that can deliver the highest profit levels sort of quicker. My issue with that is that we've been sort of putting all of this available capital into making stupid apps or slightly tweaked business models of existing industries instead of doing truly transformative things. Like I'd love to see all of these best brains and the best finance thinking going into funding climate solutions, for example, not how to have some more clever games on my phone. I think that would be a much greater value to the world. So if we could just connect Silicon Valley and climate a little bit better, um, we'd all be better off in 2022. Brian, let's talk about, there's lots of other trends. And yeah. I think that a couple that I think are worth mentioning are the acceleration of migration all over the world mm -hmm. that we're seeing. Climate again? <laughs> like a lot, a lot separated. Ab absolutely. A lot of it climate-driven. 
But that comes concomitantly with the accelerated xenophobia and extremism that we're seeing in politics. Another trend that we're seeing is this corruption and cronyism. Maybe it's the corruption cronyism has always existed, but the trend now is the exposure of the corruption and cronyism that's also leading, you know, we've seen that in the Pandora Papers. So tell us how these things will feed into the geopolitical equation in 2022. Yeah, I think a lot of this is new in the sense of the scale of these problems, but the problems aren't new. And, and maybe they're not problems. I shouldn't define migrants as problems. I've been an immigrant in four different countries myself for 18 years, and I'm proud to be that. And I'm not a problem. I pay taxes everywhere I go, and I've always added something to where I've turned up. But I think that's one of the things about digital technology and globalization is you can't hide the flaws anymore. You know, there was great pain and suffering and failures at all levels of democracy as well as other systems of government. But until there were TV cameras and then mobile phones and everyone's faces recording every minute of it and creating the audit trail, we just didn't know about a lot of those problems or we could keep it out of our mind because we weren't confronted with it on a daily basis. So I think there is something to be said that we just have higher standards today and we're exposed to more things. So things can feel negative because of that overwhelming environment. At the same time, when you create such a hugely interconnected set of systems, which is today's digitally driven globalization, then of course, you're going to surface lots of these problems and the problems can spread really quickly and become major, major problems rather than just localized problems. On the migration front, I mean, it's obvious in a way, you know, you create global trading systems, you show everyone sort of exciting lifestyles that they can experience for free on their phones, or they're getting driven out of those homes because of extreme weather. I mean, of course, you're going to see more people on the move. I just think that's obvious. Like how, how could a world with more transport than ever, more climate problems than ever, and more aspirations than ever not involve people moving around on a mass scale? It's, it's, it's just predictable, if nothing else. Then I look at kind of how these autocracies operate, and it just becomes clearer and clearer to me that countering corruption ought to be part of democratic strategizing because corruption is often linked to evading taxes and without better collection of taxes, you are not going to create the sense of fairness in global markets that are needed to A, fund social systems that include more people and minimize the losers of globalization and make people feel like they have a stake in the system. Like you need a functioning tax system for that. And for that, you need to stop corruption. And the way sort of authoritarian leaders and their cronies get to live amazing Western level lifestyles while fleecing their people is they corruptly move their money around the world. So until you track that and stop that and sanction that, you as sort of someone living in a democracy or an official in a democracy are enabling that autocracy. So if you are serious about promoting democracy and strengthening your own democratic system, it obligates you to deal with this corruption in other areas and also be honest about any corruption happening at home. So the more counter-corruption we can do, uh, the better. Yeah, for those of us who have spent our lives in the developing world, you know, we've seen this attitude of we'll take some of the corruption as long as somebody does something, as you we were saying earlier. But, you know, I think the scale and the ability and what we're discovering is 
the depth of the corruption is is truly massive. And we can't become numb to it. I think that's the problem. It, it would be so easy to say, oh, it's impossible to deal with this. It's too much. They're all the same, etc. You know, we just can't roll our eyes at it because it's difficult. And at the same time, we can't assume that just pretending everyone in the West has clean hands is going to solve it by slapping some sanctions around. You know, it's going to take a while, but can't run away from it is my point. We've got about a minute left. Let me give you a free reign. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you see emerging or deepening in 2022 that you think is worth mentioning? I think there will be more climate fights because we'll have to start to get specific. That was one of the points in the Glasgow Climate Pact, which is, okay, great, you've got 2050 targets, but something's going to have to happen in the meantime. And now that we have seen all these massive spending levels due to COVID, we know that we can mobilize resources to to deal with things quickly and on a mass scale, but it's going to also involve some sacrifices. And so people are going to start receiving that bill over the next 12 months, and it's going to cause fights either because people are ideologically opposed to those efforts or because, you know, they're happy for them to happen if they don't have to pay a price. And, and we're going to start seeing the price. Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Global Insider Newsletter. Happy New Year and thanks for joining us. And to all of you too. It was a pleasure. So Peter and Taya, let's just jump in and say what struck in this great conversation. Aside from the obvious, I have two little takeaways that I'm going to think about more. One is the ability to mobilize COVID, how that can be an example for other important agenda items in the world, like climate change, it could be a great template. And it's also kind of holds accountable the rest of the world. And we can do this for COVID. We can do this for other stuff. And then the other is how innovation and technology and the private sector can jump in and and help solve some of the very difficult problems that we're facing and that we mentioned, like democracy. So those were kind of two things that I had not thought about before and that came up in this podcast. You know, one thing that occurred to me was that he was far less convinced about the reputational risks that have hit China and how that will affect China. I mean, he certainly seemed to say that as um, the U.S. is, and he had made a point of saying relative power shrinks, there's no real substitute to what China is offering a lot of the developing world in terms of vaccines, in terms of aid, in terms of helping people and countries change their infrastructure, and seem to be saying, don't bet against China at present. So it was a interesting tour, and he's um, certainly had a lot of great novel thoughts on a lot of the things that we're concerned about. Yeah, and I also thought, um, you know, on the social media side, just like he was talking about climate change and then corruption, he's talking about these huge problems, right? But he's saying, you know, they are huge, but we should, you know, take a one bite at a time and really try and address them and not be overwhelmed by the size of the problem, but rather tackle it directly. Everybody, happy new year. I hope you have a safe and healthy 2022. Remember that you can listen to All Tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.